Hi and welcome to this latest episode from 1914-1918war.com. In this episode we're continuing our reading of Five Months at Anzac. Um, we're in the summer holiday season here in uh, the UK, so uh, I'm just going to carry on recording uh, these episodes and uh, drip them out over the summer uh, while I'm spending more time with the family. Um, I hope you enjoy them, and I'll get back to writing some custom articles uh, back probably in September. Anyway, enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. Preparing for the advance. Towards the end of July, great preparations were made for an offensive movement, the object being to take Hill 971 and so turn the Turks' right. Large platforms were dug out of the hillsides in Monash Gully, each capable of holding three to five hundred men. They were constructed well below the skyline, and were fairly secure from shellfire. On these, the incoming battalions were placed. There was not much room for sleep, but the main object seemed to be to have as many men handy as possible. The Turks seemed to be aware of the influx of troops, and they shelled the whole position almost all night. The beach, of course, was attended to most fervently, but considering the numbers of men landing, few casualties occurred. A 4.7 naval gun, which I understand had served in the relief of Ladysmith, was swathed in bags and landed on a barge, which conveyed it to a position alongside the pier. A party was put on to make a shield on the pier of boxes of our faithful friends, the 49ers, in case there were any Turks of an inquiring turn of mind along the beach towards Suvla. The engineers then constructed a landing place, and the gun was hauled ashore, again covered up, and conveyed to its position on our right during the night. General Birdwood outwitted the Turks that time, as they did not fire a shot during the whole operation. On the 3rd of August, we received orders to remove to the left flank, the right being held by the Australian Division, which participated in the operation known afterwards as Lone Pine. The last day on the beach proved to be pretty hot with shelling, chiefly from Beachy Bill. A number of pinnaces were busy all day towing in barges from the transport, and this could be easily seen from the olive grove where Bill had his lair. At one time the shells came over like rain, two of the pinnaces were hit below the waterline and were in immediate danger of sinking. Through all the shelling, Commander Cater ran along the pier to give some direction regarding the pinnaces, but was killed before he got there. He was a brave man, and very courteous and considerate. Our casualties during this afternoon were pretty considerable and our stretcher-bearers were constantly on the go, getting men under shelter. Early in the morning, the Gurkhas came ashore, but the Turks spotted them and gave them a cordial welcome to Anzac. They are a small-sized set of men, very dark, almost black, with Mongol type of face and very stolid. One was killed while landing. They were evidently not accustomed to shellfire, and at first were rather scared. 
but were soon reassured when we told them where to stand in safety. Each carried, in addition to his rifle, a kukri, a heavy sharp knife, shaped something like a reaping hook, though with a curve not quite so pronounced. It was carried in a leather case, and was as keen as a razor. I believe the Gurkha's particular delight is to use it in lopping off arms at the shoulder joint. As events turned out, we were to see a good deal of these little chaps, and to appreciate their fighting qualities. The second field ambulance was to take our position on the beach. We packed up our panniers and prepared to leave the spot where we had done so much work during the last three months, and where we had been the unwilling recipients of so much attention from Beachy Bill and his friend, Windy Annie. Our donkeys carried the panniers, and each man took his own wardrobe. Even in a place like this, one collects rubbish, just as at home, and one had to choose just what he required to take away. In some cases this was very little, for each had to be his own beast of burden. Still, with our needs reduced to the minimum, we looked rather like walking Christmas trees. The distance to Rest Gully was about a mile and a half, through saps and over very rough cobblestones, and our household goods and chattels became very heavy indeed before we halted. I know mine did. The Attempt at Sari Bear Our ambulance was attached to the left assaulting column, which consisted of the 29th Indian Brigade, 4th Australian Infantry Brigade, Mountain Battery and one company of New Zealand engineers under Brigadier General Cox. The commanding officers of all the ambulances in General Godley's division met in the gully and had operation orders explained to them by the ADMS of the division. Colonel Manders, a very capable officer. To my great regret, he was killed two days later. We had been acquainted for some time and I had great regard for him. The 4th Infantry Brigade was to operate in what was known as the Agil Dare, Dare in Turkish means gully. The operation order gave out that we were to establish our field hospital in such a position as to be readily accessible for the great number of wounded we expected. Meantime, after making all arrangements for the move and ascertaining that each man knew his job exactly, we sat about for a while. The bombardment was to commence at 5pm. Precisely at that hour, the Bacant opened fire. The howitzers and our field guns cooperating, the Turks making a hearty response. The din was dreadful. To make a man sitting beside me hear what I was saying, I had to shout at the top of my voice. However, there were not many men hit. We had tea, for which Walkley had got three eggs from somewhere, the first I'd tasted since leaving Egypt. We tried to get some sleep, but that was impossible, the noise being so great. It was hard, too, to know where one was safe from bullets. Mr Toot, the quartermaster, and I got a dugout fairly well up the hill and turned in. We had not been there long when a machine gun appeared to be trained right onto us. Bullets were coming in quantities. It was pitch dark, so we waited until they stopped, and then got further down the gully and tried to sleep there. But this particular dugout had more than ourselves in it, and we passed the night hunting for things. The division started to march out just after dark, the 4th Brigade leading. It was almost daylight before the rear of the column passed the place at which we were waiting. The men were all in great spirits, laughing and chaffing and giving the usual, Are we downhearted? I think those men would laugh if they were going to be hanged.
our bearer divisions in charge respectively of Captains Welsh, Jeffreys and Kenny followed in rear of the brigade, while the 10th divisions came in rear of the whole column. Major Meikle and I had often, like Moses viewing the land of promise, looked at the country over which the fight was now to take place, a stretch of flats about three miles long, from the beach up to the foot of the hills. As the day broke, we found a transformation at Nibrinetti Point, which is the southernmost end of Suvla Bay. At nightfall, not a ship was there. Now there was a perfect forest of masts. The place looked like Siberia in Newcastle when there was a strike on. I counted ten transports, seven battle cruisers, fourteen destroyers, twelve trawlers and a lot of pinnaces. These had landed the force which was afterwards known as the Suvla Bay Army. A balloon ship and five hospital ships were also at anchor in the bay. As we passed what was known as our number three outpost, we came across evidences of the fight. Dead men, dead mules, equipment, ammunition boxes and rifles lying all over the place. We noted two little hillocks of sand here and there, from behind which the Turks had fired at our column. It was evident that our men had soon got in touch with the enemy and had driven him back. The Agil Deer proved to be a fairly wide gully with steep hills on either side. A little distance, about three quarters of a mile up, we came to what had been the Turkish Brigade headquarters. Here everything was as they'd left it. The surprise had been complete and we had given them very short notice to quit. Clothing, rifles, equipment, copper pans and boilers were in abundance and it was evident that Abdul makes war with regard to every comfort, for there were visible also sundry articles of wearing apparel only used by the gentler sex. The men had comfortable bivouacs and plenty of bed clothing in various patterns. The camp was situated in a hollow, round in shape and about a hundred yards in diameter with dugouts in the surrounding hillsides. All was very clean except for the fleas, of which a good assortment remained. The dugouts were roofed in with waterproof sheets, buttoned together and held up by pegs which fitted into one another. These sheets with the poles made handy bivouac shelters, easily pitched and struck. Altogether their camp equipment was better than ours. We annexed all the pans and boilers and made good use of them for our own ambulance. Then, proceeding further up the gully, we found it almost impassable by reason of dead Gurkhas and mules. A gun on a ridge had the range of this place to a nicety, and the ammunition train was held up for a time. I never saw such a mess of entangled mules. They were kicking and squealing. Many of them were wounded, and through it all the Indian drivers were endeavouring to restore some kind of order. One had to keep close under the banks to escape the shells. Not far from here was the emplacement of our old friend Windy Annie. But alas, Annie was constant to Abdul, and they had taken her with them. It was a great pity we didn't get that gun. No wonder our guns never found the place. The ground had been dug out to some depth, and then roofed over with great logs and covered with earth and sandbags. The ammunition, plenty of it, was in deep pits on either side, Artillery quarters were in close proximity and the tracks of the gun were clearly seen. 
The shelling was far too heavy to let us pitch a dressing station anywhere here, so we retired to the beach to find a place more sheltered under the hills. The bearers, meanwhile, followed the troops. Soon scores of casualties began to arrive, and we selected a position in a dry creek about six yards wide, with high banks on either side. The operating tent was used as protection from the sun and stretched from bank to bank, the centre being upheld by rifles lashed together. The panniers were used to form the operating table and our drugs were placed round the banks. We were, however, much handicapped by not having any transport as our donkeys had been requisitioned by the Army Service Corps. Everything had to be carried from a distance and water was exceedingly scarce. All day we were treating cases and operating until late at night. Major Meikle and I divided the night, and we were kept going. From one until four in the morning I slept in a hole in a trench like a tomb. At daylight we could see our men writing their way through the scrub over Sari Bear, the warships firing just ahead of them to clear the scrub of the Turkish infantry. The foremost men carried flags which denoted the farthest point reached, and the extent of the two flanks as a direction to the ship. With the glasses one could see that the bayonet was being used pretty freely. The Turks were making a great stand, and we were losing a lot of men. They could be seen falling everywhere. That brings us to the end of the chapter. I'm not sure I fancy the job of holding a flag at the front of the advance as direction for the artillery fire. Just want to remind you of the Substack newsletter at 1914.1918.substack.com. This is a weekly roundup of news articles from around the uh, internet with occasional longer articles uh, published there. Um, Give it a try. It's free. Uh, See if you like it. And uh, thanks for listening. See you next episode. Bye.